Good morning. morning. We're going to be looking at God's message this morning from the book of Mark. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they may faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now before we go too much farther, I have to say that last week we had a fill-in for our music worship, that being Nathan Smith. And I just have to say, he found out the day before that he was going to be doing that. And my understanding, I wasn't here, but my understanding is that he did a great job. So if you see Nathan, be sure to uh, encourage him and edify him, because that is not an easy thing to do. I think if I'd found out that I had to lead worship, uh, music worship the day before, I would have uh, written you a nice card from Mexico. So... (laughs) Please be sure to thank him for filling in for us. So in Mark chapter 8, what we have here is Jesus has taken his ministry, as it were, on the road. Um, Capernaum was the region where his ministry was kind of based out of, and he's been traveling through the Gentile regions. He was up near the Mediterranean with Tyre and Sidon, and then he came down and around into the Decapolis, which were Ten cities, Gentile cities, and uh, smaller villages in that region, kind of on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So, to sum up his journey thus far, he was up near Tyre and Sidon. He healed a demon-possessed daughter of a Gentile woman who had shown saving faith in Christ. Then he had moved down into Decapolis, as I said, And he healed a man who was deaf and had an impediment to his speech. And now we come to the feeding of the 4,000. Now, if you may remember back in chapter 6, we discussed the feeding of the 5,000. And you may say, well, geez, we've covered the feeding of the 5,000. Do we really need to cover the feeding of the 4,000? And at first, I might have been right along with you. But as I started to take a look at it, There are several very good reasons why we need to cover the feeding of the 4,000. 
First of all, it is important to God. If it were not important to God, God would not have put it in His book. God, unlike human authors, is not trying to fill pages here, especially not in the book of Mark, which is an abbreviated gospel, but which shows us very important things. So if Mark and God didn't skip over it, we shouldn't skip over it either. Jesus had been preaching and teaching the crowd, and he had also been preaching and teaching his disciples who would follow after him when he was gone. Always, and everything that Christ did in his earthly ministry was in the shadow of the cross. He knew that he would be leaving, and it was almost, what can I share with my disciples before I leave? They're going to carry on after I have returned to the Father. So this is very important. Now, as we've discussed, Jesus had healed in the Jewish regions, He had performed miracles in the Jewish regions. He had turned water into wine, as we know, and he had fed the 5,000, and he had done other miracles there as well. Now, we have the healing of the Gentile woman's daughter and the feeding of the 4,000 to the Gentiles in a Gentile region. Talking and taking what was once believed to only be for God's chosen people, the Jews, and giving them to the Gentiles. And that is a very important distinction, especially during the time that we are talking about. Right? What he is basically saying and telling us is that those promises, those blessings, and not just miracles and healing, but salvation and the gospel aren't just available to God's chosen people, but they are available to all. Compassion, the gospel, salvation was not just meant for the Jews. So today we're going to be looking at the compassion of Christ, not just to the chosen people, but to everybody. As a Christian, Jesus is our best example. He is the ideal. And by its very name, Christian, Christ-like, we are to follow Christ's example as we work on our sanctification and as we eagerly await his return. So we're going to look at the compassion of Christ. We're going to look at the miracle that he performs here. And we're going to talk briefly about his return to Capernaum. But before I get ahead of myself, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can all be in your house this morning. I pray for those who are not here, those who cannot be here this morning, Father, that you would bless them in a special way. And I ask that you would bless us here this morning with your word and your message. Help it to reach our hearts. Help it to teach us what you would have it teach us today so that we leave here praising you and blessing you and having your word on our lips and just pray for the message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Mark 8, 1 through 3, we read, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, 
Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Jesus and his disciples and this multitude that was following him around were in the wilderness, in a desolate place, right? There was no Walmart around the corner. There was no Myers or Gordons to go to. They were out in the wilderness. There was nothing around them. And this multitude, this crowd had been following Jesus for three days and just soaking up, absorbing everything that he was preaching and teaching to them. Imagine for a moment what that must have been like. So captivated was this crowd with what Jesus was sharing with them that they either had not brought food or were not interested in eating it because they were so focused on the Son of God and what he was imparting to them. The time came for Jesus and his disciples to depart. And Jesus calls his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the multitude. Now, as we said, these were mainly a multitude made up of Gentiles. And if you know your ancient history, during this time, the Jews were considered to be up here, and us lowly, dirty Gentiles were considered to be down here. So for Jesus to say, I have compassion on the multitudes was a very telling thing. Jews had nothing but disdain for the Gentiles. They did not have compassion for them, but Jesus did. Gentiles were dirty. Gentiles were defiled. Gentiles were not the chosen people of God. When a Jew crossed over from a Gentile region into the promised land, they would literally stop take their sandals off and shake the dirt of the Gentile lands out of their sandals, lest they contaminate the dirt of the promised land with the dirt from the Gentile lands. That's how far it went. And sometimes it went even farther. Jesus had compassion, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Now, what is compassion in the biblical sense? It is related to empathy, but it is not just empathy. Empathy is when we can put ourselves in the shoes of another. And I will use the example when someone has lost a loved one. Those of us who have also lost a loved one, we can very easily relate to what that person is thinking and feeling and going through. We can empathize with where they're at because at one time we have been through a similar situation. That is empathy, but that is not compassion. Now, Jesus was a man. Jesus was the God-man. And as a man, Jesus could empathize with his creation. He is the God of everything, And yet, to us who believe, he is a very personal God. 
He can relate to everything that we are thinking, everything that we are feeling, aside from sin. God and Jesus know pain. God and Jesus know hunger. God and Jesus know exhaustion. Biblical compassion is when we feel empathy and that causes us to act. Compassion is not just a feeling. We can feel compassionate, but if it does not trigger us to act, it is not biblical compassion. Jesus could empathize with the multitudes that had been following him for three days. He knew hunger. He knew exhaustion. But that empath- that, those feelings of empathy caused him to act, and that is compassion. Jesus did not say, I feel compassion. He said, I have compassion for the multitudes, and then he acted. Going back to our example of someone in our congregation or maybe somebody we know who have lost a loved one, when that happens, we empathize with them certainly, and then we feel compassion because we are compelled to act. We pray for those people. We comfort those people. We send cards to those people. We send love to those people. And because we're Baptists, we send casseroles, right? All right. Jesus felt empathy. Jesus had compassion, and Jesus was compelled to act. Empathy and compassion are attributes of God. All of God's attributes are perfect attributes. God is omniscient. He perfectly knows everything. God is omnipotent. He perfectly, completely powerful. That is God. Completely and perfectly powerful. God is omnipresent. He is perfectly everywhere, both in and out of time. God is compassionate. He is perfectly compelled to act for His children. God does not sit on his hands. God is an active God. He is alive. He is working. He is compelled to act. We all know Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Everything that we feel God can empathize with what we are going through. When we look back, we can see times in our lives when God was compelled by His compassion to act on our behalf. He is with us always, and He has compassion for us. He is alive, and He is active in our lives. Think back for a moment to 9-11. Tragic day in American history. On that day, hijacked planes were turned into weapons of terror. And I remember at the time, we were living in Chicago, and people were asking, and in the media they were asking, where is God? Where is God's compassion? There were 14,000 people in those towers when the planes struck. 
And out of that, 2,753 died on that day. The FAA at the time grounded all air traffic in the United States. It was the largest no-fly zone ever created. Several flights inbound to the United States were diverted to a small town called Gander in Newfoundland. 6,000 passengers were stranded in the town of Gander for six days. 6,000 for six days. And Gander at that time had a population of only 11,000 people. Gander did not have the resources to feed, clothe, or shelter 6,000 people who were suddenly thrust upon them. Gander rallied. They went into their closets. They went into their own personal pantries. They went into stores and they befriended those 6,000 people on that awful day and on the days that followed. Where was God? Where was God's compassion? God was in Gander, Newfoundland that day. God was in those towers. God was on those plains. God was and is dwelling inside every child of God. God has compassion and God acts even when we're not aware of it, even when we cannot see it. Don't ever doubt that. Those who ask, where is God? Where is God's compassion? Those are people who do not know God. Our God is alive and our God is compassionate. And how do we know that our God is compassionate? We know because He sent His only beloved begotten Son to the cross for us. Our single greatest need is a relationship with our God and Creator. Christ knows what it is not to have God because on the cross, that was what He had to pay. He was on the cross. God turned His back on Him because our sin was laid upon Him there. And our God is completely holy and cannot abide by sin turned away from His only begotten Son whom He loved for us. God sent Him. Jesus came and willingly went to the cross. He was buried, and three days later, He rose again victorious for us. Jesus had compassion for us even when we were worthless, wretched sinners. God had compassion through Jesus on that multitude. And that compulsion, that compassion compelled him to act. I have compassion for these people. If I send them away hungry, they will faint on the way. Mark 8, 4. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness. The disciples answer Jesus' compassion with a question. How can one, more to the point, how can we satisfy with people with bread in the wilderness? 
Now, had they forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000? I doubt it. I wouldn't. What they were saying is not, how do we, but more to the point, how do we as disciples, as men, do this? We cannot. They were saying, we as disciples, as men, cannot do this, but you as God, as the God-man, can. It was an acknowledgement by the disciples of two things. The disciples' weakness and the Lord's strength. The disciples knew that they could not do it, but they knew who could. We, as ourselves, as Christians, cannot do it alone. But the Lord can. So the disciples are saying, Lord, we cannot do it. What are you going to do? And if we read a little further, Jesus asks them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled and took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Jesus has the crowd sit down on the ground much like the 5,000, probably in order to facilitate feeding so many of them. He takes the seven loaves, which are just crackers really, acknowledges where the power is coming from, and began creating. This, like the feeding of the 5,000, is a creation miracle. And because it's so well known, we and myself often will look at this and just kind of breeze through it. Yeah, Jesus created fish and he created bread. Fantastic. But think about that for a second. You have seven crackers and a few fish, and out of that you're going to feed 4,000 people. Christ created something from nothing here. Seven crackers and a few fish, when you compare it to the multitudes of the 4,000, is really nothing at all. So Jesus begins creating these fish. These fish were created dead. They had never swam in any ocean or any sea. They had never been alive And they were the best tasting fish that those people had ever eaten. And how do I know that? Because Christ does everything perfectly. There were no cast off fish. These fish weren't a few day old. They were created perfectly right there and given to the multitude. Man, what that must have tasted like, right? God does everything perfectly. Perfectly, from creating a snowflake to creating a fish. The 4,000 ate and were satisfied. Think about this. Three days with nothing to eat, and then you have this feast set before you. I bet they gorged themselves. They ate and were satisfied. It's not, well, I had three days of fasting, I ate a little, I'm okay. No, they were filled. 
after three days of fasting. And when they were done, the disciples gathered up seven large baskets. Now, the word used here in this account for baskets in the Greek is not the same word that was used for baskets in the feeding of the 5,000. If we recall, there were seven baskets taken up after the feeding of the 4,000. But that was more of like a what we would consider a doggy bag or a traveling lunch. Enough for one person. The word for basket here in the feeding of the 4,000 is the same word that they used to describe the basket that they lowered Paul down out of when he was taking off from Damascus and they had to lower him down. That was the type of basket we're talking about here when they collected up seven of them. I'm sorry, 12 of them. Make that seven. (laughs) Getting my accounts mixed up here. They collected up seven large baskets and 12 traveling lunches in the earlier account. You got to get that straight. So seven large baskets, people carrying baskets full of fragments. Now, that being said, did Jesus create too much food? Certainly not. That fish, those fish in those seven large baskets had a purpose, much like the fish and bread that were in the seven smaller baskets, right? Christ does everything perfectly. There was a purpose for what he created, though we are not told what that purpose was. But maybe, if we look down to Mark 8, 15 through 21, there might be something there related to bread. And maybe Jesus was saving that fish for this, but maybe he wasn't. So we read, then he charged them, and that he is Christ. Christ charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you yet not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And also I broke seven for the 4,000. How many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? What Jesus is talking about in this account is he is warning the disciples to beware of the leavening and of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now what is he talking about here? What he is talking is about is the gospel of Christ and how we have to be very careful not to add to it nor to take away from it. The disciples' misunderstanding, thinking that he is talking literally about bread, creates this account for us. And I'm sure they got the message eventually, but at the time, they were very confused about it, thinking that he was talking about literal bread. We have one God, 
and we have one gospel. And we think back to the feedings, how the disciples could not do it, how only Jesus could do it. And when we apply that to our salvation, when we were lost, we could not save ourselves. Only Jesus could. We have to understand that at the time the Pharisees and even Herod were preaching and believing in a false gospel, a works-based salvation, which is not true. Do this and you will somehow earn your salvation or you must be circumcised in order to have salvation. Jesus said to beware of those who are trying to add things to what I am bringing. That is a false doctrine. That is not the gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Amen. We're going to flip over to John 6 really quick and read. John 6, 35 through 40. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. That is compassion. Oftentimes, sometimes, my daughter Abigail and I will make our own pizza dough from scratch. And we measure everything out for consistency's sake. Because I might take a cup of flour, and Abby might take a cup of flour, and those might be two different amounts. So for consistency, we weigh everything by grams. So many grams of flour, so many grams of salt, so many grams of yeast or leavening. The ratio of yeast is just 1% to the flour. So if we're using 500 grams of flour, we only use 5 grams of yeast. And this is the process. The yeast is a living organism, but it is dormant. So you have to wake that yeast up, and you do that by putting it into warm water, And then you whisk it vigorously for about 30 seconds. And if the yeast is alive and active at that point, you will get kind of a frothy, bubbly, brownish water. And that's a way you can tell that yeast is alive, it is awake, and it is well. And then you mix that small amount of yeast in with your other ingredients. You mix it all together, 
You put it in a bowl, you cover it, you pop it in the fridge for 24 hours. And what happens to those ingredients in that 24 hours is they expand because the yeast is actually feasting and eating on the sugars that are in the flour that are in the other ingredients. And it's creating carbon dioxide, which expands that. So when you take those ingredients out of the fridge 24 hours later, they have expanded to twice their size. Those ingredients that were once just flour and salt and oil have become something else. So you take it out, you pop it back in your stand mixer for about 30 seconds to degas it, then you divide it, and then you cover it back up and pop it back into the fridge for another 24 hours. And it continues to feast on those sugars, that active yeast, and the dough continues to expand. So those ingredients have become something that they were not. They've gone from being that flour and that yeast and that salt and that oil into some pretty good tasting pizza dough. But it is not what it was before. Beware of the leavening of the Pharisees and of Herod because it will change what I have, the pure message, the perfect gospel into something that it is not. Jesus was warning them that any change, even a small one to the gospel, will drastically alter it. It would cease to be the gospel. God and his gospel are perfect. We are not to add to it. We are certainly not to take away from it. Then finally, in Mark 8, 9 through 10, we read, Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, right? Got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Once the crowd is fed, Jesus sends them away, gets into the boat with his disciples, and crosses back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, which is on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And that is where most of them believe that Jesus' earthly ministry was based out of. Christ had shown great compassion to many people throughout his earthly ministry. The greatest example of that compassion was his willingness to go to the cross for us. As followers of Christ, we must follow his example. Now, I'm not talking about going to the cross. That one-time sacrifice was sufficient for us and for our sins. What I am talking about is we need to not only feel empathy and compassion for people, but we need to have that compassion compel us to act on their behalf. It does not have to be big, but it cannot just stop at feeling. If we feel empathy and we feel compassion, but we fail to act, we are not following Christ. Jesus empathized, 
felt compassion, and acted. We need to empathize, feel compassion, and to act. And one of the best ways that we can do that is witnessing to those that are lost. We follow the example of Christ when we do this, and we follow the Great Commission. We've been commanded to do both. There is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save us. We can show the way. We can be a part of that. We can be God's instrument. We can share the one true gospel like Christ and His disciples did. But it is not in our power to save. Only Jesus can save. We recognize that we are sinners and that we cannot save ourselves. We put our trust in Jesus to save us, believing that He can save us. Believing that He went to the cross willingly as a one-time sacrifice for our sins. Believing that He was buried and rose again on the third day with life eternal in heaven with Him and all who believe. That is the Gospel. If God has been working in your life, if you do not know Him as your Savior, if you have questions about salvation or where you will go when you die, I would beg you to come and talk to us. Come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Jay, any of the deacons, any of the congregation. If they don't know, they can point you in the direction you need to go and the people you need to speak with. God knows everything that you are going through. God knows everything that you are thinking and feeling. He knows it, and He was compelled to act by sending His Son to the cross for us so that we could have a relationship with Him. That is not something that He had to do. That is something that He chose to do. Because he can empathize with us and where we are. And he has compassion on us. Grace and peace to you, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I am amazed by your word. I am amazed by your gospel. I am amazed by the example of Christ. His earthly ministry, when he left heaven, took on the body of a man and came to earth for us, was ridiculed, was beaten, was bloodied, and went to the cross because of your great grace and mercy and compassion for us. Died there, was buried, and rose again victorious for us so that we could have the victory. I pray now for anyone here who may not know you as personal Savior that today may be the day of salvation for them. I thank you for the blessing of your word and the blessing of everyone here. I pray that you bless us now as we depart. In Jesus' name, amen.